You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply As you and I certainly know, there is so much more to theater than just what happens on stage. There are those behind the scenes and backstage, contributing just as much to the production of any show. The next four episodes will be focusing on this important work and how we as actors can collaborate with them. Today's guest is not only an actress, but has worked as a dresser in more than 20 Broadway shows. But for Kimberly Faye Greenberg, performing in a Broadway show is still on her bucket list. It just hasn't been the thing that has happened yet. But I'm grateful to be surrounded by Broadway performers. And and I've gotten gigs. I I got my almost Broadway show because I was a dresser who worked with somebody who hired me to be in there. Hello there, I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, actor, singer, and host of Why I'll Never Make It, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts, where fellow creatives share with us the realities of a career in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the Win Me newsletter. Now that's a monthly email that lets you know of upcoming guests, fills you in on members-only bonus episodes, and gives you a peek behind the curtain of this podcast. So sign up today at whyillnevermakeit.com. If you've ever listened to the very end of one of these episodes, you'll hear me talk about this podcast's association with Broadway Makers Alliance. They are a collective of small business entrepreneurs and artists who have all found outlets for their love of theater and especially Broadway. Well, it was actually one of the leaders of Broadway Makers that introduced me to today's guests. And I am so grateful to have met and spoken with Kimberly Faye Greenberg. Now, she's an actress and singer who has become best known for her Fanny Bryce shows. And performing as this legendary character has opened up so many doors for Kimberly. But it took her a while to finally settle into this iconic role. And at one point, she was even performing in two off-Broadway shows at the same time. Now, in conjunction with her acting career here in New York, she's also been a dresser in many Broadway shows. As a swing, she isn't bound to just one show full-time, so she's able to bounce around to different shows, 
from The Lion King and Cabaret to Something Rotten and Cinderella. And all of this on top of a coaching business as well. So needless to say, Kimberly stays quite busy. But rather than listen to me extol her virtues, here's actually an upcoming guest who has a very special place in her heart for Kimberly. Kimberly Greenberg is my guardian angel. Uh, She is the reason that I get to work on Broadway. (laughs) She helped me craft my resume. She helped me meet connections. She She reached out to me and was like, hey, this supervisor is looking for people. Send your stuff, I'll put in a good word. She is hands down one of the best people I've ever come across. That's Evelyn LaBelle, and you'll be hearing from her and her fiancé a couple of episodes from now as they talk about their own journey to working backstage in theater. But for now, let's get to my conversation with Kimberly and her work as an actress and coach. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. Yes, yes. We were talking before we got started uh, of our years here in the city. We're, so we're we're both officially New Yorkers now, having lived here so long. <laughs> I know, we're both way past the 10-year mark. So there you go. <laughs> that, that, that's right. And the other one for actors is being on Law & Order. Now, I have I fortunately did my criminal intent back when that was a show. Have you ever done the Law & Order yet? It's so funny. I've done a background role many, many, many years ago on Law and Order, but I have yet to actually do a role on Law and Order. So that is still a thing. That's still a bucket list. Got to right. check it's that off the there. actor list. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because one of the the main things that you've been doing in your 20 years here in the city is obviously on stage productions. And I was reading that at one point you did two off Broadway shows at the same time. So two questions. Number one. How exactly did that come about, you know, that scheduling? And then number two, it just must have been hectic and exhausting, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. This is it's a hilarious story. I can't even believe I did it. It's now, it's been now like five or six years, actually a little more than that, because that started in about 2013 and went on for about three years um, in total where I was doing these shows. So, I opened in Danny and Sylvia, the Danny Kay musical playing Sylvia Fine. And and this is a two person musical about, you know, the historical Danny Kay. And I would never have imagined anything like that would have ever happened in my career. That was beyond comprehension that you could even do something like that. But a person saw me in that show and had a Fanny Bryce solo show and had asked if I would workshop it. And I did at that same time I was doing Danny and Sylvia. And then about a year later, through a series of twists and turns, the show ended up opening at St. Luke's Theater, which is on 46th Street off Broadway. And um, that's how it kind of worked. And I would say the two shows were sort of more in a rep kind of idea, but I could do both shows on the same day. So I could do one show at two and then it would turn around and I could do the other show at let's say 4.30 or so. And then it would kind of reverse itself throughout the week. Now, the other thing about that is I was actually doing three shows at the time because 
you're just greedy. You're just being greedy is all it is. Like we're I all wish, trying to get that know? one that one <laughs> show at a time and you're doing three. Well, this is actually the third show was working backstage as a dresser at the Imperial Theater, which is just down the street at Billy Elliot on Broadway. So what I would do, interestingly enough, let's say do a matinee of Danny and Sylvia, and that would get me done at about 3.30 and the show at the Imperial would have just been maybe 15 or 20 minutes into the first act and I was a swing so they would need they would call me to come over and I would get there in the middle of the first act right before the big quick change and I would still be in my pin curls and my lashes (laughs) and I would dress the show and then I would leave and be back in my other theater just in time to do the switchover and do one night with Fanny Bryce and so that that went on for quite a long time so there you go (laughs) that I mean, just the way you describe it, it sounds like an exhausting day. I don't know if I could do that ever again. Like thinking (laughs) about how I did that, I have no idea. But um, like anything, I mean, these are things that I obviously do simultaneously throughout my career. Never would I have imagined I'd be doing them all at once, like on on the the same same day. day. But it's also just an actor's life because let's face it, you know, an off-Broadway contract doesn't pay a lot of money and you still have to support yourself. And I wasn't going to quit what my, I say this in quotes, day job, but it's really like my other career per se. So I I had to juggle both. I didn't really have a choice, but it's also very, um, so think about it. It's really cool at the time to think that that actually happened. But again, I don't know how I would do that now (laughs) being so much, so many more years down the line. I'm not sure how I had that kind of energy. (laughs) But you are correct. I mean, the, the actor's life is one of, you know, drought where there's nothing. And then there's this feast of things happening that, that are going right, whether it's, you know, on stage, on camera. So, so you are right. When these opportunities come along, it's very difficult to say no, you know, both for financial reasons and our artistic reasons. Absolutely. And I I want those listeners to understand that this just didn't happen. This was like, I had been in New York since 2000. And this was in 2013. And I will say that was probably a turning point of my stage career when people really started to get to know me as an actress. So that was like 13 years down the line. So this was definitely not an overnight thing. And absolutely, um, the off-Broadway connotation for an actor, a theater actor being in an off-Broadway show is a big deal. So you got to figure out, you know, how to make it work. Plus just being someone who wants to perform. That is, that is my calling. That's like what I feel very absolutely passionate about. And so, you know, you figure out how to make things work. That's kind of, we as performers, we want, we, that's what we want to do. We strive to figure out how do we make these things work so that we can have a lifetime career doing what we're doing. Right, right. We, we try to find the, those financial means in order to support our habit, basically. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's not about the money. It's not about the money. I wish you were, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's nice when those things come along. You know, you, you've done television as well. So the residual mm-hmm. checks can be nice when they come along. But yeah, when it comes to theater, I, I've I've done off Broadway, and I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, sometimes maybe maybe five hundred dollars a week, maybe if you have that contract, which in New York is is not a lot. And then there are those showcases where you get five hundred dollars for the show. Period. Yes. And even too, I think on my contract, we were paid per performance. Oh, right. And then we had a minimum of how many you do. So there are so many different types of contracts that you could be on 
And those 13 years leading up to this pivotal moment, as you call it, what was it that just kept you going day after day? Oh, wow. There's so many gigs that I didn't book, including a gig where I was asked to learn the role to play Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl, and then I didn't book it. So it's ironic how then that led to me playing this other show off-Broadway as Fanny Bryce and opening up these other doors. So I feel like um, there is a lot of truth in the fact that when somebody tells you you can't do something, then you keep moving forward and you keep being like, I'm gonna do this, you know what I mean? So I think there's that. I think there's the idea of, I don't know really truly, while I do a lot in the realm of being a performer, beside, you know, I work backstage and I'm a performer and I coach actors and backstage folks, but like, I don't foresee my life outside of that periphery. So I really wouldn't know what else to do with myself. And when I'm on stage, that's like, it's like a drug, but it's also just like, something that I live daily for. So if I can continue to work towards getting that next thing, that's just something that I've always done. And I mean, this is like a lifelong thing. I I was wanting to be an actor since I was in the fourth grade. And I think probably earlier because my mom said that I was dancing in my crib to the Mickey Mouse Club. So I think inherently (laughs) once I actually found this, like I was reading backstage when I was in fourth or fifth grade and telling my mother how I was going to go about being an actor. You know what I mean? I, she thought I was crazy. And I just, that fire has never really gone away. And I do enjoy the chase just as much as I do, uh, having the opportunity. So I love thinking about outside of the box ideas and how I can go about getting my next gig. It does feel like a chase sometimes of, of, of something that we can't even see. We just know it's ahead of us, but we're not exactly sure where it is or what it's going to be. Absolutely. And don't get me, yeah. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that I don't feel like oh, I want to give up or like, I don't know what's going to happen. I've had plenty of days where I threw everything in the air and said, I'm done. Um, I've had plenty of those and I've certainly had plenty of droughts in my 20 years or more doing this. But I, again, it just, I can't even explain it. It's just a fire that has never really gone out in, in my life. And when I think about doing something else that just doesn't even really seem like there is anything else that I would be like, yeah, I'll go do that. And I've had my fair of like sitting in an office. I've worked in a law firm. I've tempted in a, you know, financial firm. I've done all these kinds of things that, you know, that somebody would be doing for their career lifelong. And it's just not something that I could pursue long-term. Yeah. I think those side jobs for a lot of actors, and certainly it's for me, and it sounds like it's the same for you, that it's almost a confirmation. Like, yes, this is nice to make a little money, but it makes me realize how much I don't want to be doing this and how I'm much happier doing what I am doing. Yeah, exactly. And I will say that anytime I've worked a job like that, it gives me the impetus to push harder. Right. To get to the point where you don't have to do that side job anymore. Exactly. Exactly. And I, again, that's, I mean, my side, my day job, again, I put that in quotes because it really is like a, a side career of like a dual career of being a dresser, but that's what that has afforded me of being able to leave 
But yeah, but even in, at that point, you know, when I'm dressing backstage on a Broadway show, I mean, come on, I'm human. I'm like, I would like to be on that stage right now. Do you know what I mean? So there is there is that humanness to it still, which then gives me the impetus to be like, I'm going to push harder. So you had mentioned that it was a pivotal moment this time when you were doing these three shows, you know, at the same time. What was it about that time that was so pivotal and kind of a change in your career? There are several things to it. Number one, I realized what my potential was as a performer, because I will also say, while that sounds so grand and glorious, and now I say, like, I don't know how I could do that again. It was also the one of the most emotional taxing times of my entire life, like especially doing this one person. It was a two and a half hour show off Broadway this one night with Fanny Bryce and actually going through this process of creating the show and then the process that I got to get to off Broadway. Um, and then opening an off Broadway and the pressure and the money and many different things that went into getting that show up and then having it just be me supporting that show. That's a lot. Do you know what I mean? So I realized what I was capable of. I remember initially workshopping that show and we were at a JCC in New Jersey. And at that point in time, the show was over three hours and I had never done anything like that in my life, obviously. And it was like more than 30 songs. And I had been taking tap dancing lessons because I had to tap alone in like four of the numbers. And I had never, I tapped, but never done anything like that before. I mean, I didn't call myself a tapper and, and just put the show out there. And I remember walking off stage when that was over and literally collapsing on the floor I'll never forget that feeling of collapsing on the floor and just like all crying and all those emotions come out. And well, I know that sounds a little cheesy, but like that kind of pressure built with a kind of like, I want to make sure this is good. Plus like the pressure of everybody else who had put their time, money and energy into it. And then that same thing coming back around, you know, for off Broadway, which is an even bigger feat. I mean, think about like, 50, 60, 70, $100,000 to open a show off Broadway. Do you right. know what I mean? And it's different than having a cast of people of, of 10 to 20 people, because then, then, then the responsibility is spread out. However, all of this money, all of these people backstage, the creative team, they're all relying on just you, just right. Kimberly to hold this show together. And with it being a new show and also the idea of Fanny Bryce, because of you have Barbara, you know what I mean? You're like, you're looking at the iconic Barbara, you know what I mean? Like from funny girl and knowing that as well. And I knew that like potentially the New York times would come to see it and they did. And the associated press would come to see it and all these big papers would come and and thankfully, then that turning the tide on that, just like going with it and working through every piece of like mental gymnastics that I was having and pushing through, because I certainly had times of where I almost was like, I'm done. I can't do this. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't do this. And then finally, when we opened it and I, I started seeing success, like the reviews were great for my performance. And then from people seeing me in that show, 
another creative team saw me there and asked me to be in their forthcoming Broadway show called Ghost Light. And then another creative person saw me in that show and ended up opening another show called um, the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolics at the Liberty Theater, which is on 42nd Street. I wasn't in it as Fanny Bryce because it was based on the Olive Thomas story, but she had a Fanny Bryce character and it was based on her seeing all my portrayals online. And then I ended up playing Fanny in that production for like three or four months before it closed. So there was another thing. And then people started asking me for my own version. And then I wrote my own show again, a whole nother thing of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before, but I do know what worked and what didn't for the off-Broadway show. I also know what I feel akin to and me studying this woman and what my strengths are in bringing her to the world. And, and then I created my own show and then that created its own ripple effect of like the venues that brought me to their show told other venues. And then, and then now like, 10 or 11 years later, I have my own solo show that's touring the country. And now people come to me for just chatting with them and like a lecture about who is Fanny Bryce? Who is this girl? And what does she do? And, and little did I know all these years later that that foray of year of studying this material um, and not booking the role did actually set me up for success which included like doing all these shows at once, which included people now knowing I was a dresser and they want to know how to do that. And people were like, you created your own show and now you're touring it. How are you doing that? And then I became a coach. And then that's how that opened up. So like, again, it was very much that time, 13 years into my journey in New York, that all these things started to happen. And I just kind of said, yes, okay, yes, and, and okay, yes, and, and I'm just going to do all these things. And and here we are. So what is it about Fanny Bryce that attracts you so much and brings you back time and time again to portray her on stage and in these recordings? It's so interesting. I, um, I never, this is something I would just not have envisioned for myself but again it's opened so many doors and the more I play this woman the more she has so much influence over me I say in relaying her to my audience has helped me figure out who I am as well what is it that you've learned about yourself or what similarities do you see well definitely the chutzpah version of really truly learning how to like not be afraid to to ask for what I want and what I need not to say that I'm able to still do that all the time but that is certainly like oh she taught me how to own my my power um because that's how she was and that's how hot I needed to be if I was going to be successful in the show I opened off Broadway and it was really figuring out how to harness that and I think Again, with like then creating my own show, that was a whole nother power that I didn't know that I had, that I could create this thing and then be producer, be creator, be writer, be whatever, you know what I mean? Get a whole team together. And you know what I mean? So it's like, I think it still continues to grow and ebb and morph into everything else. And now I think my trajectory has changed a little bit and Fanny helped me do that so now people are like oh kim plays fanny she can play lillian hellman or she can play um katherine kennedy or you know what i mean so i i play all these other historical women and people reach out to me to do that i don't know i i don't know it's just something that continues to happen she makes me stronger as an individual and it's cool too because when people relate to her on so many levels and she's had such an influence on our society as far as like 
music and comedians we see today and how we approach comedy as far as culture and religion. And she was one of the first Broadway stars. So yeah, it kind of has this like simmering effect on anything I put my hands on. It's very interesting. Well, do you feel that being so identified now with this role of Fanny Bryce that it has kept you from other projects or limits you in any way? It's so funny. And I tell clients this and I tell people that this, but it's like, actually, no, I think it's expanding, expanding what I do. Um, My specificity in playing her allows, I think, and I think this goes for any actor. I think being specific is really good people see you do something really well and then they think oh well if she does this really well she could do this which again is why I like play I think a lot of historical women and I mean it's not just playing them I play other things too but giving somebody an experience when they watch you as a performer and if they are creative creative something and you made them feel something then they're like okay if she made me feel in this way, then I'm going to harness her ability and bring her to this project or see if she's right for this project. And I think anytime, if you're ultra specific about what you bring to a role or what you do, your ultra specificness is going to make you successful in that. And then it's going to allow the people watching it an experience. And then that, if that person's a creative in our business, then it's going to allow them to bring you for something else because they had that connection with you and your work. Which is something important for us performers to to remember. It's not just important that we play a character, but that we really embody a person, you know, a full-fledged person that isn't just Fanny Bryce, who we know as this Barbara Streisand role, but it was, it was an actual person that had yeah. her high moments, her low moments, and everything in between. Exactly, exactly. And that applies to anybody, whether the character is fictional or based on somebody in real life. You have not only had this Fanny Bryce and this stage career, but you've also ventured into on-camera work and television, as you've mentioned. How do you find the transition of going back and forth from these musical stage productions to your work on camera? Uh, I I don't feel like the transition is as different as you think it is. And I think part of the reason why when I made that shift initially, I was getting called in, but I wasn't booking was because I was thinking there was something a lot different to what we were doing. But really truthfully, and I was like actually dumbing down, not dumbing down, but really trying to play very small because I think we as actors, the first time a theater actor is told to be in front of the camera, we're told don't do anything, just say the words. Well, yes, that's part of it. But what I've come to understand and why I'm having more success and booking and things like that is because it still has to come from a place of you and you still have to, as long as whatever it is that you're doing is coming from an honest place and I'm just going to be me, you know, as quirky and weird as I can be sometimes and sometimes not, you know what I mean? Like, the better it serves me. And I think that brings up a good point because it's something that I hadn't really made a connection to until you started uh, putting it in that way. And that when we're on stage, we really are you know, taking on this other character, figuring out what they would do, how they would sing it, how they would say it, how they interact. And really it's about 
that character and taking that on. Whereas on camera, it has to be much more natural, infused, I think, with more of us and how we would say this line or how we would approach this scene. It sounds like that you're saying that that's kind of the bridge to cross as you go on camera versus on stage. Yeah, I think for camera, you really have to be ultra comfortable in your own skin. Because I think on stage, yeah, in, in any character we portray, we're still bringing ourselves because the only way we can figure out what's truthful is by taking from our own experience and bringing it to the forefront. But then once we figure out what's truthful and honest, we still have to portray that across to a thousand people in an audience. So then it becomes heightened. So when you're looking at it from a TV standpoint, first of all, it's not like we're doing a play that's been around for thousands of years. You know what I mean? We're doing something that's just been written in the moment and really truthfully, there isn't any of that stuff to grab from. So if you can be as comfortable in your own skin as possible and then figure out how that line, you honestly relate to that line in your own body and your head. And again, just knowing yourself and then putting it out. However you infuse that. If I talk with my hands, I'm going to talk with my hands. You know what I mean? Like if I say that line and I talk with my hands, I'm just going to talk with my hands. Now, obviously there's still some technical things that you can learn for camera acting like the camera the camera picks up on everything so if you figure out how you as an actor look the best on camera and what body isms that you do that read really well so on camera it's just like it's more intimate it's just like literally the person's in the room with you except the person isn't a person it's a camera yeah that makes total sense And so you've had a chance to help other actors navigate not only this transition between on stage and and on camera, but just in their careers. How has that coaching not only helped those actors and, and the people that you bring on, but how has that coaching helped you? Oh, wow. Oh, that that's a great question. And I again, I tell people this, too, because a couple of things with coaching performers or backstage artists or artists in general. The biggest thing I offer to people is, again, how can you figure out your unique you in what you're bringing to this? Because you're just you and nobody else is you. And what do you bring to the table that makes you unique and hireable? Um, so that you're thought of first. You're you're one per, out of a thousand people. You're, you now become the only one that does what you do. So what is that thing? Do you know what I mean? That kind of takes you out of the pile. And I think giving people permission to think like that is really important. I also love giving people permission to break the rules because truthfully, there are no rules. There are preferences and everybody has a preference of like, yes, don't send me the email or don't call me or what, don't sing that song or you know, whatever it is, preferences, but those aren't yeah, rules. Because casting directors are people too. They have their exactly. their quirks. Yeah, exactly. And you can't please everybody, but you also have to remember that when one person tells you that, that doesn't mean you don't do that with everybody else. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I think people need to be reminded. And then I have strategy and things like that because I'm way more of a marketing strategist, like as, as far as a coach and like thinking outside of the box and things like that. But I will say, how it has massively influenced me in my career because when I first started coaching actors was way back when I was doing those two shows and people were asking for my help and I was just giving my opinion 
or somebody would be like, I have all this experience as a dresser and I want to work on Broadway. Can you help me with my resume? And then I would just help them. Do you know what I mean? Then they would get a show and I'd be like, oh, wow. Okay. That just happened. Or, you know what I mean? Somebody would sit me down. I want to create my own show. How can I do this? Okay, great. You know, meet at Starbucks, let's chat. And then finally somebody said to me, you know, you should be paid for this. And I was like, okay, you know what I mean? And that's how that (laughs) sort of started. But what I realized is people were asking me all the time for help. And the one thing I never did through my first 13 years of being an actor is ask for help. I had coaches, I had teachers, but I've always been about, I have to figure it out and I have to figure it out on my own. And that had been how I had been functioning for 13 years. And then when people started asking me for help, I realized, oh, this is really important because I just gave them two pieces of advice and they just got a Broadway show because I gave them this advice or, you know what I mean? Like, or they just created this great thing. You know what I mean? From all these things, I took me a long time to figure out how do you do this? Do you know what I mean? Like, and then, and that not, this isn't about the coaching. This was about me realizing that if I want to move ahead, I got to start asking for help. And that's like one of the hardest things I think for anybody to do as an artist. It's so interesting that you say that because on stage, we we know the importance of collaboration and working with the director and the other actors and everyone there. Yet when it comes to our own personal business of acting, yeah, you're right. Then we think we have to do it alone. We have to strike out. We have to do it and, and just kind of make it up as we go along. Exactly. And there are people out there who have already been on this track, or there are people out there doing what you want to be doing, even from the littlest thing. So how can you ask for help? And that's what I started doing. And that's, I think, when I even saw things start to change more. And I think me taking more ownership. And I think part of it, too, was with One Night with Fanny Bryce, opening that off Broadway was was difficult. And I had to ask for a lot of help with that as well from people who I trusted surrounding me who could help me with the portrayal and help me with the lines and help me with blah, 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 blah. So I would say that's something that I learned and that I continue to take with me and remind myself because I do sometimes still get stuck in that I'm going to figure it out. And then I was, well, why don't I just ask for help? Do you know what I mean? Like there just aren't enough hours in the day. And also too, I think when you ask for help, not everyone's going to say yes, but you'll find that a lot of people do say yes because they had help and they want to have other, you know, they want to help others. It's like, you got to find your family, find your people, find your tribe. And that's kind of like, and in our business, that's like ultra important as well for longevity's sake. And I think the other thing too, is it just keeps me working with clients, keeps me motivated and inspired. And it also just makes me go, if I'm telling them what to do, I got to stay on my stuff too, because what's the point of the example? Exactly. I got to set the example. If I tell someone, don't be afraid to make the phone call. Well, then I got to take a phone call. And I got to tell you, I do not like to make phone calls. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I got to do what I say, you know what I mean? Like I got to, I got to walk my walk. The the teachers that say things and don't walk the walk, then it's like, I, I don't know that stuff actually really works. Do you know what I mean? Like, are they really doing what they say they're doing.
And now for a slight change of pace, we're going to talk about Kimberly's time as a dresser. And it is at this point that I want to say that it was actually a listener that prompted me to look into bringing a dresser onto the show. And so when I heard about Kimberly, I knew that she would be a perfect fit. And so I reached out to Robin, the listener, and asked her if she had a couple of questions for Kimberly. Well, the first one that she asked was, while her main focus is on acting, how did she get involved with the backstage work of becoming a dresser? Now, this actually began for Kimberly back in high school, whenever she grew up around the Sacramento area in California and worked for the Sacramento Music Circus, which is now called the California Music Theater. And she was helping out with the the costuming, the, the wardrobe department. She eventually moved up the ranks and became assistant supervisor. But then after a few years there, an opportunity came her way. What happened was, I, I was in college and I got a call and I had been affiliated with the theater on and off through college. And I got a call when I was studying in New York, I went to UC Irvine and they have a performer program where they take the, take a, a, a small number of people to New York to study for a month. And I, we were auditioning and taking class and I got this random phone call from the artistic director of Music Circus saying, Kim, can you please come back again this summer and be our assistant supervisor? And you wanna know, I talk about chutzpah. Here's this girl, not even graduated from college yet. I was like, no, I wanna be the wardrobe supervisor. I never done. I never done this before. No more assistant. Like, no, 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 no assistant. I want to be the supervisor, and I think he he thought he thought about it for a second, and he was like, "Okay," <laughs> gave me the job, and I totally negotiated the job, and and it was probably one of the most challenging summers they had because their first show was Will Rogers Follies, and if you're if anyone's familiar with that show, in the first five minutes of the show. There's a, a chorus of, you know, these beautiful showgirls and they change costumes, I kid you not, like five times in the first like five minutes of the show in all these really elaborate clothes. And again, here am I and all my dressers are volunteers and they're all like, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman now, but they were all middle-aged women or like, you know, volunteers. I had to train them all to do this crazy show right out of the gate. It was the first show of the season. And I remember... We got through that opening number and the head of Music Circus came back and he was like, that was amazing. You're the best wardrobe supervisor we've ever had. That has never gone smooth like that ever in our lives. And I think at that point in time, I was like, oh yes, this is amazing. You know what I mean? And I, I did that whole summer. And then obviously I was very intent on being an actor and I graduated from school and I ended up being an actor for several years. I, I started working right away as an actor once I graduated and I ended up moving to New York um, a couple of years later because I was touring the U.S. and I ended up on the East Coast and I was one of those actors that moved to New York with a couple hundred bucks and a couple suitcases and I I found an apartment unseen from the alumni of my college and I just moved and said, who knows, you know, we'll see what happens. I have nothing to lose. And I was waiting on the street for an audition and I had been temping and I had been cocktail waitressing. So I had done the actory kind of jobs and I was waiting on the street and, and a volunteer 
who had been one of my volunteer dressers when I was an assistant and when I was a supervisor walked past me while I was waiting on the street in the early morning hours for an audition. Isn't it, isn't it crazy? Like city of millions of people and, and you bump into those random people from your past. Like, and I'm not talking like in the middle of the day, I'm talking like 7am in the morning, something crazy. You know, when we had to get on, we had to get online really early and mm-hmm. he was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here. I'm an actor and I'm waiting in line for an audition. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? He's like, I moved here to be a professional dresser. It's so interesting because he was like uh, one of the, the women who I worked with at Music Circus as her assistant. He's like, she's here too. And that's how we got, we got reacquainted. Uh, she's here too, dressing too on Broadway. I can refer you. Why are you not working on Broadway as a dresser? And I'll be honest, that thought had not occurred to me that I could still be a dresser on Broadway and still be an actor. Like it didn't even occur to me. I don't know why. And um, because again, we didn't have the internet and all these things at that point in time. This was in 2000. Yeah, before Facebook, before Google. Um, So we didn't have, this was before any of this. So we didn't, I didn't know that that could be a thing. And so he took me, he walked me over to Aida, which was running on Broadway and introduced me to the supervisors and they interviewed me. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm an actor too. And I think there was probably a chuckle because you know what I mean? I can totally understand that thinking. And I basically said, I'm an actor too, so I can't be full time, but I'll definitely be a swing and I'll do your day work, which is a prep call. And they were like, okay, let's do it. And I did. And that was my first show on Broadway. And then since that point in time, I worked as a swing dresser on over 20 Broadway shows while still performing. So it can be a thing. And that same supervisor who initially hired me, I've been on many shows with, and um, I was just on Mean Girls with her. Shout out to Terry Purcell. Thank you for taking me into the fold when I was young and didn't know what was going on. And And didn't um, even know you could be a dresser. And didn't even know I could be a dresser (laughs) on Broadway, even though I was a dresser in in life. (laughs) And here we are. I've just been kind of doing both at the same time. And I've, I've been so lucky. I've been able to help other people get their Broadway show as a dresser too. And it's been pretty great to be able to do that as well. And it really gives you an appreciation. I know I've done tech work. That's been my experience uh, backstage doing tech work of, you know, tours coming through or operas, ballets, as well as just like, you know, uh, rock concerts, that kind of thing. So being a stagehand gave me an appreciation for that side of it. I assume being a dresser then gives you even greater appreciation when you are the actor. Absolutely. And I, I tell people, I was like, oh, because I do both, there are things I would never as an actor do. And I try to teach that to others too. Come on, guys, hang up your clothes. Your dresser is not your, your mother. You know what I mean? Like a funny story is my most recent gig before the pandemic was shooting a recurring role on the HBO series Plot Against America. And I went in for my fitting and the people running the fitting were members of my union of as my wardrobe union. And I, and I said to them, Oh, you know, I'm a member of the union too. I work on Broadway. And they nearly fell over because they're like, we've never had a principal actor. Who's also a member of the wardrobe union. This is so cool. And then they went around the shop telling everybody. And then um, when I was on set, you know, I have such a, respect for that and no to being one of them 
at the end of the day, you know, I hung up on my clothes. So I was like, this is what I, as an actor would do. I mean, I'm a dresser. I'm there. These people should not come in here and then hang on my clothes from the floor. And that's just not how you treat your costumes. And just as a courtesy uh, and the uh, dresser who didn't know I was a member of the wardrobe union. Cause I hadn't really spoken with him. Um, he came in and was like, Oh my gosh, you hung up your, all your clothes. I was like, yes, I'm a member of your local. I hung up my clothes. I'm a dresser too. And he was like, he was gobsmacked by the whole thing. Like, I can't even believe it. I'm going to go tell my coworkers that you're a member of our union. But, um, he's like, do you want a job? <laughs> I mean, like, um, but I, I would just say like, Yes, I, I definitely will say I come at it from different eyes, being that I work on both sides of, of the spectrum. Um, you know, I'm very conscientious about my clothes. If I, if I, I, you know, I shouldn't as a, as an actor when there's a union person, but like, you know, if I can help you make sure that my clothes look good, I'm going to help you do that because, of just where I come from, there are just things. I want to make all our jobs easier. It'll make them harder. So one question I had is the subject of tipping. And that's certainly something that me growing up through high school, certainly college, and even in my first few summer stock thing, I, I never thought about that. It's like, well, this is my job. That's your job. You know, we're all doing our job. And then eventually, I think it was it was really once I did my first national tour that I heard this concept of tipping dressers or different people. Now, as someone who's been both an actor and a dresser, what is your view on that? And how do we actors best show appreciation, whether it's a financial tip or in other ways, but what are your feelings on that? It's interesting because I haven't asked this question before and I will say tipping is a courtesy. So yes, we're getting paid to be there and do our job, but most of the time I feel like dressers are, are in some ways going beyond the job, whether that's like filling your water bottle or doing something extra for you in a queue or having your Kleenex or even just the idea of touching your dirty underwear or something like that. Do you know what I mean? That has to, that has to happen to ensure that the show is going to be smooth and it differs between whether or not, you know, you're in the ensemble and usually like if you're in the ensemble of a show, let's say the female ensemble will get to, usually they have like one or maybe two dressers. And for it, for example, that female ensemble will get together and decide like what they feel they want to tip on a weekly basis and they'll just pool their money and then it'll be divided amongst the dressers. Or like if you're a principal, more than likely a dresser for a principal actor is doing a lot more than dressing. They're probably bringing the mail and they're probably bringing their guests to the stage door and they might be answering a phone call or a text or like different things like that might be happening as well. So usually that's that that might incite a, a larger tip per se but again it's a courtesy it doesn't always happen but then a tip could go from anywhere from like a couple of bucks because if you're in some tiny theater making a couple hundred dollars a week and you do have a dresser who is a volunteer it might be nice to give them a little something because True. they aren't they aren't making any money so giving them 20 bucks or giving them a gift card to starbucks is totally you know warranted but a courtesy to your dresser might also mean 
here's a plate of cookies or here's your favorite coffee that I see you bringing in every week. Or maybe it is like you're bringing the coffee or you're making the coffee or, or, or something. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a tip too, potentially like a courtesy. It's a matter of just showing that appreciation, whether it's in, in actual dollars or a gift or something. Exactly. Exactly. And if you're going to be with this person all year, then maybe that happens at Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Or at the holidays or on somebody's birthday or so there's no rules. There's no rhyme or reason or rules, but, but the courtesy does exist and it is kind of standard in a Broadway production. Contract. Yeah, I, I will say that, that certainly there is that expectation. You know, when I was on tour, it was always how much are you giving this week? It was just expected. And, and now I was in the ensemble in both of those tours that I did. So yes, there, there was that, you know, one or two people that were assigned to us. But it did become an expectation. And sometimes there were those dressers, like particularly for Evita, within the first act, I would say there was five big costume changes. And then so certain shows require a lot more. Whereas in Adam's family, I stayed in one costume the entire show. Right. And the expectation there would be very different than the expectation on Evita. Absolutely. I, I don't, there's no rules to it, but I, you could think about it in the terms, this is, I, this is how I like to think about it. Think about it in terms of somebody who waits on you at a restaurant and you know that there's an expectation that they get between 10 and 15% for waiting on you. But that is really, truly the only money they're making waiting on you. But think about it in terms of like dressing, you know, they're getting a salary, maybe, so is there that little extra thing that you want to give to them as well for showing appreciation? Exactly. Because whenever I did uh, Fun Home at a regional theater, it was really my first time that a dresser had done that gone above and beyond. You know, I'd, I'd had great dressers and and had good relationships with, with different theaters and, you know, people that I'd worked with. But in this particular case, because of the, the demands of the role in Fun Home, she really took it upon herself to have Kleenex on days when I had a, you know, a, a cold or a sniffle or bring water. And so it was the first time I had experienced that kind of above and beyond dresser that I, I've heard about. And so, yeah, I tried to take care of her. I think I, I gave her some champagne as, as we finished yeah, the show. You know, it's different things like that, that I think it opened my eyes up to the fact that there is as much passion and as much joy backstage as there is for us, you know, doing the creative, artistic singing things that we do on stage. Right. And there's definitely, I think for each thing, each job backstage requires a very specific type of person. Like there is a very specific skill set to be a dresser because not only do you have to have skill sets as far as like being able to sew a button or ironing or steaming, but you also have to be able to do these quick changes, but you also have to be a people person and you also have to be able to interact with people appropriately and professionally, but yet you still have to be kind of a friend, kind of someone who's there maybe as an assistant or, or whatever. So it's, it just takes a special kind of person to be able to do that sort of job. And again, it's physical labor as well. So when you're seeing a person in like a dresser in a Vita, that that might require more. And then maybe in fun home, it's more of like a personal relationship where they go above and beyond. So again, it's just like kind of how you are looking at the situation and what what is that mean to you? But I think showing any sort of form of appreciation is valued. It doesn't have to be money. Do you know what I mean? It can be a gift card. It can be a food it could whatever it is that you feel might be meaningful to the other person 
And it doesn't mean even when you're in a show and you're pooling your money, you have to be doing what everybody else is doing either. But um, what is it that you feel is appropriate in this situation? Now, Robin had another question. Have you had any mishaps with costumes right before places? (laughs) (laughs) Right before places? Right before places would be a very easy mishap to solve because they would just hold the show. (laughs) So actually those don't come to mind, but I've had many mishaps actually during a show. That's when things tend to go wrong. I've had dressing as an intern at Music Circus. I was dressing Funny Girl. I was dressing Laura Beachman and Funny Girl. And like right before the big scene, she's supposed to put on this really great outfit. And then the zipper broke and she couldn't put it on. And so she just- Those zippers, those zippers, it's always the way. Oh, it's always a zipper. And then she couldn't put it on. So she just had to wear a robe on stage. <laughs> there you go. I mean, there are like, there's so many crazy things that could go wrong. Like the shoe, the zippers break on the shoes and they go on stage barefoot or like um, where I think my, in a quick change, even my dresser who was a Broadway dresser was trying to help me and I wasn't paying attention because it was really fast. The whole back of my skirt was tucked up in my pantyhose. So, you know, you saw- Oh, I've I've seen that. Yes, I've seen that before. But like, it's just normal. And it's part of the joy of theater too, because audience loves those kinds of things when those kinds of things happen and seeing them because that makes it live and real. And and we as dressers just, we always always have a kit on hand to help solve issues. So like gaff tape is a great thing that fixes a hem that may have gone out that somebody might trip on or, you know, something weird happens or like safety pins are always a great thing. I have sewn people in things before and then you cut them out of them when, when they come <laughs> off stage. I mean, you rip, you rip things if somebody can't get out and they have to get the cost other costume on. I mean, things just happen and you have to just, that's part of your job is you just have to to make a decision and just be like, that's the only way that that's going to happen. Okay. Uh, Sorry. I just ripped a $10,000 costume, but we've got another one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you can always uh, stitch it. Right. You can always fix it. You know what I mean? Like, so some crazy things have happened and they're always going to happen. There's no way that things are not going to Yeah, because when I was on Adam's Family, I was an understudy for Mal Beinecke. And for whatever reason, it was decided that we he would, you know, the, the show would end and then he would run off stage, change costume just for his bow. Like, really? And, so and, 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 and like the whole show, he had worn a suit. And so it was decided that he would now wear a tie-dyed shirt. He would have yeah. wear his tie like a bandana. And so it was this a huge quick change in 30 seconds. Now, the guy who did it, he, he said he eventually got into a rhythm. And obviously, he did it a lot more than I did. I, as the understudy, never Got it right. I was I was always missing one piece or still fixing it as I was going on stage bowing. And so to me, it just never made sense. I, I assume you had those quick changes that just never quite happened. All the time. Because I mean directors and and you know, I love them dearly, but you know, sometimes you just don't realize, or even designers, you know what I mean, or don't necessarily realize like there's really only 20 seconds here to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you do your best to really make those happen, but sometimes things just 
it takes a long time to sometimes get things right. Or if you're in a tour and this has already been working for the Broadway company, but it somehow doesn't quite work right for the tour because the Broadway company, there was ways, reasons, things why that happened. And maybe the people on the tour don't know that it becomes difficult. Do you know what I mean? Or you're, you're, you're trapped, you're dre- using dressers that aren't as experienced. Because and, and when just, you're on tour every week is a different dresser. So right, they're having right. to kind of figure it out. And then finally you're in a rhythm and then you're leaving. Right. So finally by Friday night and then you leave Sunday and then you have to start it all over again. Exactly. So there's that. And plus being a swing as an actor is really tough if you're in quick change world, because again, you just don't get that practice. And you also are not in, even as a replacement, you're not that person who invented the reason why that happens the way it does, which is, which may have made sense for that original person, but for you, maybe they were a lefty and you're a righty and unzipping and doing this this way doesn't work for you but yet that's how everyone does it now so you know what I mean it can make things more complicated um but again joy of theater you just make it work because that's what we do (laughs) (laughs) now now when it comes to the the dressing that you've done that is how you've made Broadway as an actress you're still waiting on on that chance is there a bit of a I, I guess tension within yourself, like one half of you has made it to Broadway, but the other half that you really want to get there hasn't quite yet. Yeah, it's been interesting because I have had my fair share of being in final callbacks for Broadway shows. It just hasn't gone my way. Um, and I was also in another show that was just about to Broadway and then something crazy happened and then it didn't happen. So and then it goes I mean, away. Yep. I've yeah, and there. then it goes away. So um of course, it's hard. Do you know what I mean? It's hard. But then again, I have had such an interesting trajectory as a career. And I have definitely made a name for myself as a performer in the Broadway community that that I sometimes I have imposter syndrome. But like, for the most part, I mean, I, I want that production contract, that would be ideal. And I'm still aching and driving for that production contract. But it hasn't happened yet. So we'll see. But again, I was always told I was going to be the actor that would be successful later. I would not be successful in my 20s. In my 30s, I would start to see that come into play because I was always had very much a maturity about me on stage. I'm definitely growing into what it is that I really do. And Fanny has helped me along that journey. So I feel like the production Broadway contract will come, but I will say it is challenging at some points in time. It is challenging, but again, I'm so specific about what I do. I'm not an ensemble girl. Uh, You know, I'm not a dancer so much a Broadway. Everyone's very young and, you know, singer, dancer, actor, do all the things. And it's very pop music oriented and I don't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it would also make sense as to why that hasn't necessarily happened yet as well. It just hasn't been the thing that has happened yet. But I'm grateful to be surrounded by Broadway performers and and I've gotten gigs. I, I got all my almost Broadway show because I was a dresser who worked with somebody who hired me to be in there in there. See, production. yeah. So I mean, it has not affected what it is I do and where I'm going. And I'm always in you know benefits, and it's always in the Broadway benefit. It's always in the in the circle of of Broadway stuff. So has your definition of making it and finding success in this business, has that changed since you've been in New York over the 20 years? 
Yeah, I would say, I think my definition of success is still the same of like just being able to make a life for myself in, in the business that we do. And I would just really like it to be like it to be, I think transitioning way more into the performer end. Um, the dressing will always be there probably, but like, I'd like that to be more purposeful of my income, but I also want the career to be on my own terms too. You know what I mean? I don't, I want to be as successful. So I don't have to necessarily be worrying about when I'm going to get that next job. Do you know what I mean? So again, that's about making um, an income stream from Fanny and my solo show and my coaching. And, and, you know, that's why I want to do TV and film, because again, having one job on a show, even if it's like a co-star week or a guest star will allow me the financial feasibility to not worry as much, even if it's just like a little small thing. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I think just, continuing to find my own niche and I think that's very much what I've done in the Broadway community is I've been very adamant about creating my own niche and I think because I've done that people know who I am and know what I do and understand what I do. Thanks so much to Kimberly for sharing her insights both on stage and backstage and how each person plays a vital role in the production of any show. To catch the latest presentation of her Fanny Bryce show, go to KimberlyFayGreenberg.com. I also want to thank you for listening and joining us in this conversation. If you know someone who you think could benefit from an episode like this, please share the podcast with them. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Music in this episode is by the U.S. Army Blues and Kevin McLeod. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with acting teacher Terry Knickerbocker as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.